Having just returned from a couple of weeks with family vacation, and given the severity of some of the things that are happening in the world this week, I feel totally unprepared for this morning. But we have a wonderful text of Scripture for today. The 10th chapter of Acts of the Apostles tells the story of the Apostle Peter, who had gone to Joppa on the Mediterranean coast, and he went up onto the roof of a home in which he was staying and began to pray. And as he was praying, he felt hunger and was beginning to think about something to eat, and then he saw this vision of a sheet descending from the heavens with all sorts of animals, four-legged animals and reptiles and birds, And then he heard the words, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter responded, I would never touch any unclean thing. And the voice said to him, don't call unclean what I have called clean. And then we pick up the text there. Now, while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make, of the vision that he had seen, suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house, and they were standing by the gate. And they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter went down to the men and he said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they answered, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. And the next day, He got up and he went with them. And some of the believers from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day they came to Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And on Peter's arrival, Cornelius met him and falling at his feet, worshipped him. But Peter made him get up and saying, Stand up, I'm only a mortal. And as he talked with him, he went in and he found that many had assembled and he said to them, you yourselves know that it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Now may I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius replied, Four days ago, at this very hour, at three o'clock, I was praying in my house when suddenly a man in dazzling clothes stood before me. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying in the home of Simon a tanner by the sea. Therefore I sent for you immediately and you have been kind enough to come. So now all of us are here in the presence of God to listen to all that the Lord has commanded you to say. And then Peter began to speak to them 
I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Almighty God, in these troubling and disturbing times, we come to this hour in this day to hear what you have to say. We seek a word from the Lord. So may the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There's not a lot to laugh about these days, but somebody sent me this, and I thought I'd share it with you. It's a helpful clarification, I think, during these divisive times. We know that Muslims do not recognize Jews as God's chosen people. And Jews do not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And Protestants do not recognize the Pope as the leader of the Christian world. We also know that Baptists do not recognize each other at the liquor store. the best I got. (laughs) We live in anxious times, and the divisions between us threaten all of us. And while we may be less optimistic about the future today, people of faith have reason for hope. Think for a minute about how you have changed over the past years. How are you different today than you were five years ago? Or ten years ago? Or twenty years ago? Now obviously we all age, and that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm interested in is how have your convictions changed? How have your commitments adjusted? How have your beliefs or your opinions or your political viewpoints or your prejudices changed? Perhaps you're more aware and more concerned about what's happening in the world today. Or quite possibly your position on social issues like abortion or gay marriage have changed over the years. You may have changed your political party affiliation. Perhaps over the last decade or two, you've returned to church and you've embraced a deeper experience of faith. How are you different than the way you used to be? And what is it that caused that change to occur in your life? I'm willing to bet this morning that God has been at work in your life, sometimes in subtle ways, and sometimes with a two-by-four over the head. 
Our story from Acts of the Apostles today tells how the early church had to begin to think differently about the other. Those who come from a different religion or who come from a different cultural background, some different tribe. And it led to a bridging of the huge religious divisions in the first century. And I think it may have something to say to us today about the divisions in the 21st century and how we need to think differently and how we can also build bridges over those things that divide us. But it will take a different mindset, a different way of thinking about the other, the ones who are different than we are. We have seen escalating tensions between black and white in this country. We've witnessed another devastating attack in France, an attempted coup in Turkey this week. The world just seems to be spinning out of control. My wife and I were in Minnesota this past week where a young black man, Philando Castile, was fatally shot by a police officer during a traffic stop. Was it his race? Or was it the presence of a gun that caused the tragic turn of events? Was this another case of driving while black? Has the state of Minnesota provided a legal permit to carry a gun? There's so much anger and so much resentment and division that prompts additional carnage and shootings in Dallas and now this morning Baton Rouge, Louisiana. The world just seems to be spinning out of control. And yet, here we are this morning to talk about the power of new life that has been unleashed by Almighty God through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it still has the ability to set right what has gone wrong in our lives and to set right what has gone wrong in the world. It happened to Peter and Cornelius. The Apostle Peter began his speech long ago in Caesarea to Cornelius and his family with the words, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Faith in Christ is the continual process of discovery accompanied by a deeper ever-deepening understanding of the implications and the universality of God's love. Now, Cornelius was a centurion from the Italian regiment, a Gentile who was devout and feared God, but was an occupier with the Roman Empire in the Holy Land. Both Peter and Cornelius were led by God to one another to discover this radical truth that this new faith in Jesus was for all people everywhere. The old categories 
of those who are in and those who are out no longer applied. On our recent trips to the Holy Land in 2016 and 2014, we always began by flying into Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is where the ancient city of Joppa exists today. It was there that Peter was staying with Simon the Tanner when three men sent by Cornelius arrived to implore him to visit their master. And the next day they all traveled up the coast of the Mediterranean Sea northward to Caesarea. We visited both Joppa and Caesarea. It was there that Herod the Great had built a huge castle with a freshwater pool right down on the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, with fresh water piped all the way through the country. It was there in Caesarea that Paul would later be imprisoned before he was sent to Rome. And it was there that this profound change in the lives of Peter and Cornelius and in the lives of the early church began when the Roman occupiers and the Jewish converts came together by God's grace. A new way of understanding, a new way of interacting with the other was unleashed in the church. Faith was no longer about being Jewish or Gentile. The old antagonisms were finished and gone. A new community was being formed by God's intention. It no longer mattered where you grew up or to which tribe you belonged. You were welcomed in the church of Jesus Christ. It no longer mattered whether you were highly respected or of low status. You were welcomed in the church of Jesus Christ. It no longer mattered whether you were young or old or black or white or Asian or Hispanic or single or married, whether you were a meat eater or a vegetarian or whether you worked as a soldier or you were a peace activist. You were welcomed in the church of Jesus Christ. A new kind of humanity was forming, a new kind of community made up of people from every nation, from every tribe, from every language group. It has been said in our time, the end of the Cold War has turned out not to be the start of an era of peace, but instead an age of growing tribalism and ethnic and religious conflict according to Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. Region after region of the world has been reduced to what Thomas Hobbes called the war of every man against every man, in which life becomes solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And this week we have seen those tensions escalating around the world. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs is the chief rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations. He was knighted in 2005 by Queen Elizabeth for his service to the community and for his activism and interfaith dialogue and relations. He sits in the House of Lords in London 
And he quoted an Oxford philosopher who noted that religious freedom was born in Europe in the 17th century after a devastating series of religious wars. All it took was a single shift from the belief that faith is the most important thing and therefore everyone should honor the one true faith to the belief that faith is the most important thing therefore everyone should be free to honor his or her own faith did you get that shift Faith is the most important thing. Therefore, everyone should honor the one true faith. To faith is the most important thing. Therefore, everyone should be free to honor his or her own faith. It may be a small shift in thinking, but it leads to vastly different ways of relating to others. And we seem to be engaged in the world today through conflict to determine whether that simple idea and the values that it engenders can endure. Two weeks ago, I officiated at a wedding in New Jersey between a Syrian Christian husband and an American Caucasian wife, good friend of our family's. If you've seen the movie Brooklyn, this is another more contemporary Brooklyn story. Two people from two different cultures and two families trying to adjust to one another. At one point, as we were preparing for the wedding, I was standing next to Reverend El Yatim. He is the pastor of the Salam Lutheran Church in Brooklyn, New York. He's a Palestinian from Bethlehem. Up came the motorcade with the wedding party and out jumped several men who were dressed like the groom, groomsmen. Reverend El Yatim went to visit the groomsmen and meet them and he came back and he said, this individual, his name is Eli and that one is Muhammad. And the other one is Muhammad. And then he turned to me very seriously and he said, are you going to allow this? And I said, allow what? He said, I know Orthodox priests that would walk out of here right now and refuse to officiate this ceremony with two Muslims here. Now you can imagine if you've been driven from your home in Syria by the Muslim community, there's no love lost. It was clear that the animosity between these two Arabic communities is intense. If we're going to survive, we're going to have to learn to think differently about the other. And for some reason, God just seems to be shuffling the deck in the world. And these two young people came up side by side and fell in love with one another. 
They're learning to think differently, I can guarantee you that. I wonder if there isn't another small shift in our thinking that might have a large effect. It's the difference between optimism and hope. Again, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs provides insight for me in this. He writes, how was it that the Jews continued to survive through history? The answer that always came to me every time I studied it was hope. The Jewish people kept hope alive and hope kept the Jewish people alive. The word tikva is the Hebrew word for hope. It's a key word in the Hebrew Bible. And when Jews returned to the land of their birth and belonging to Israel, they chose as their national anthem, Ha-Tikva, the hope. He goes on to say, hope is different from optimism. One way or another, for most of us, there has been a sense of a turning point where we have lost our optimism about the future. Maybe it was World War II or Hiroshima. Maybe it was Stalinist Russia or the attacks in Paris or the coup attempt in Turkey or the failure of the foundations of Western society. But at some point, many of us no longer believed in the inevitability and the limitlessness of progress. The ability of science and reason to solve our problems. There's a story told about the old Russian politician back in the old days who said, Comrades, yesterday we stood at the edge of the abyss, but today we have taken a great step forward. <laughs> Just feels that way sometimes. But the death of optimism does not mean the end of hope. There's a fundamental difference between optimism and hope. Optimism is a passive condition. Hope is an active one. Optimism is the belief that the world is going to get better. Hope is the belief that if we work together hard enough, together we might be able to make the world better. It does not require courage, just a kind of naivete, to be an optimist. But it requires a great deal of courage to have hope. Lord Jonathan Sachs has said, No Jew, knowing what we do of history, can be an optimist. But no believing Jew can ever let go of hope. That is why, given that the 21st century is likely not to be an age of optimism, we really need an age of hope if we're to avoid an age of tragedy. These are clearly difficult days. And there is the birth pangs of something new, some new way of living together that we're experiencing. There's less reason for optimism, but there is still great reason for hopefulness. Because God is at work. 
Our prayers matter. Like Peter and Cornelius, we can learn to think differently about the world and what God is up to in the world, drawing us into each other's lives and into community. We have to look at those who are different from us in a new way. And perhaps then, like Peter, we can confess, I truly understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to God. There is a universality about faith in Jesus Christ our Lord, and it has the power to transform the way we think and act in the world. And thanks be to God for that. Amen.